10 push-ups, three sets, 10 squats, three sets, and, you know, very similar to something like that, you know, pull-ups at the bar or under the under the table and, and some dips and calf raises. And I literally put on three kilos just doing a body weight program because I had just never been exposed to any form of strength training. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing for me. The strength and conditioning program helped me build so much muscle and I ended up playing around 65 kilos. So I put on over 10 kilos in my career that was obviously helped me be more powerful, more explosive um, and be able to create a lot more force um, in my in my movements and in my running capacity as well. G'day, Alicia. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks for for joining me today, and you got your little one there as well. So it's good to have both of you on the podcast today. Yes, got little Daisy in here having a little snooze. So hopefully she behaves, or um, if not, she'll be happy to show face on the on the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's good. So how how's life going at the moment post rugby, and what have you been up to? Um, yeah, well, life's been a little bit crazy since finishing. Um, so I retired September last year um, and then pretty much fell pregnant a month later um, with little Daisy and moved back from we were um, in around with the Sevens, Aussie Sevens program in Sydney and we moved back to Japan um, where my husband's based over here for his work um, over in Tokyo. And so then, yeah, just juggling being pregnant and having our elder daughter, Matilda, and just um, normal Japanese life for us. And then we moved back to Australia for a short period of time um, just recently when we recently um, up to Agnes Water where we've just bought our first family home up there. Um, and we had brought little beautiful Daisy into the world in June this year um, and had an awesome little off-season period of time Um when we were back in Oz, just enjoying all the good things that a Queensland winter can offer. Um, and then we've just moved back over to um, Japan for the preseason and the start of the top league season again. So kind of to and froing between um, both the countries and just juggling um, mum life and, and looking after two kids now, which is a big adjustment going from one to two. Hundred percent. Sounds like it's all all been going on, but you know something different, and you know it's the next part of life as well. So you had the the joys of being a full time athlete and all of that. Now you get to be a full time mom and see what the rest of the um life um holds for you, really. Yeah, and it was always something that I um looked to do post playing as well. So I was fortunate enough; I had to, I got to have a little period of where I got to play um and train whilst having a, a daughter as well. Um. But, yeah, just the, the rate that the game's going and, and how it's progressing and our lifestyle living in two different countries um, wasn't kind of feasible to continue keep doing that for, for my career. Um, and, yeah, now just get to dive into the side of how to be how to be a full-time mum to two little beautiful girls and, and show them all that the world has to offer. And um, I'm, I'm fortunate that I get to still be around rugby, obviously with my husband coaching and playing over here. Um, my brother-in-law playing over here for um, the Tokyo Black Rams as well and being involved in a little bit of coaching things here and there, um, some commentary roles um, and then doing some ambassador roles with HSBC on the seventh circuit as well. So rugby is never too far away from the <laughs> my mind frame. Um, 
So lucky that I get to kind of balance a little bit of the other side of footy now with being a mum too. Mm. Do you think both girls are going to go down the rugby path or are you going to just allow them to see what they, they want to do? But it sort of feels like in the family now that, that rugby is, you know, very <laughs> popular, so they sort of have to. I think it's very much ingrained in their bloodstream. Um, but Matilda, she we're so fortunate here in Japan that um, the training field is two minutes away from our house. So we spend most days down at the Rico rugby field and they've got a little AstroTurf section where all of the kids of the foreign families and Japanese families, they run around there like maniacs every day. So she's exposed to it really quite regularly and it's become just a natural innate part of her life. Um, and she, as a byproduct product of that, she actually just loves it. Um, and she loves going and cheering for for Matt and for Zaki and watching them play. Um, so we, we haven't forced it upon her at all. She's just kind of naturally been exposed to it in that environment and she's loving it. And she'll run and jump on us and tackle mum or she'll watch a lot of the sevens girls playing and, and she'll say, you know, she knows a lot of them as my really good friends and like as her you know, aunties as such. Um, so she'll be watching them saying, run, run, Dommy, or tackle Charlotte. And, you know, so it's, without forcing upon her it's just what she's been exposed to all the time so she seems she seems to love it um daisy on the other hand has a bit of a more placid nature than what matilda had exposed at early days so not really sure what days would be up to she's a bit of a chiller which is really a godsend because turbo tilly um it doesn't mind dropping a shoulder in randomly every now and then and just jumping on top of you and and all of that so um, if that's what, if that's what they want to do, um, we would be a hundred percent all for it. But I think they've they are growing up in an era where their possibilities in sport are endless, um, and that tide has changed about what they they can do. So um, we will be the most supportive parents that we can be, and hopefully not the pushy parents. <laughs> mm, no, it's exciting times ahead. So, how, what's life like over there in Japan, and what's uh, rugby like over there as well? Yeah, it's um, a very contrast to obviously life we've just had in Agnes Water that was very slow and chilled and days by the beach and, and you know, fires at night time. Whereas um, here it's a little bit... A little bit crazy, like we, we you open our front door and we're on the street. We've got um, the neighbourhood around us, which is all foreign communities, and there's just kids everywhere and it's crazy. And um, But also really nice because you kind of have that kind of co-parenting lifestyle and have people around you all the time, whereas we're on 40 acres in Agnes, so we were isolated and, and it was quite beautiful. You know, you hear the birds before you hear kids crying in the morning. Um and we ride a bike around everywhere. I've got an electric bike that's got a seat on the back for Tilly and Daisy's on the front pack and we cruise around on the bikes everywhere and catch the train. Um, so public transport is really easy and accessibility is really good and the food's incredible over here and so it's a lot cheaper to eat out and eat lots of sets and good quality food um, than a lot of what the supermarket is, which is kind of a bit of a pole opposite to Australia where it's quite expensive to eat out and buying fresh and your own produce is um, a lot cheaper for your family. So, um, yeah, I feel like we live this kind of bipolar, two two separate um, personalities while we're in different countries. But um, we love it. We've got a really big sense of community um, here in Japan, both foreign and Japanese families. Um 
and you know Matilda goes to a full Japanese speaking nursery or kindergarten so her Japanese language is probably better than mine um, and we have a, a beautiful Japanese community that um, we engage in as well and um, thing, things are very different the way they do things in terms of like administration and I've, I've never had to write so many letters and fill out forms and, and, and things to to do simple activities over here but um it's really cool and a really great experience for our family. And in terms of the rugby, um, so the Japanese top league competition is run by companies. So all of the teams that are in the top league division one, they're company based. Um, so we are sponsored by Rico um, and we're the Tokyo Black Rams. And there's obviously alcohol companies, there's Toyota, there's, um, you know, communication companies, NEC and NTT. Um and they have company workers that also play rugby. So you have a foreigners that are professional um, and they train full-time like they would in super rugby or in any other competition. But then you have um, the Japanese players that are company workers and they train all of the field sessions and all of the gym and then they go to work and then they work for half the day or they, um, on, when it's the foreign boys or the professional players, their day off, um, the Japanese company workers, they go to work for the day. So, um, and those company workers then have a job, job for life within that company. Um, so then they'll be employed by Rico for the rest of their life and, and they'll stay as a Rico company worker. So it's kind of whatever company you get at, it's depending on whether you get a blue or white collar job depends on, um, on, you know, how much you love that community as well. Um, but yeah, so that I found really interesting when I moved over here, um, and just in terms of how the setup is and and they try and get a lot of um, Japanese players to come through the university system um, and they try and get a lot of foreigners to come through universities so in their Japanese um, category because you can only have a certain number of foreigners and capped as in terms of Wallabies, All Blacks, Sevens capped players that play for your club as well. So you can only have three capped internationals and then you can only have four foreigners on the field at one time um so the more players that you can have that are category a that are japanese technically japanese players have a japanese passport um the better your kind of club japanese system is um so yeah it's very different how the um, structure of it works um and in terms of the footy they love to train they just train, 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 train as much as possible. They're there to all hours of the afternoon and night looking to do reviews or to do extras and they have a fantastic work ethic um, and they play really fast. Like the rugby over here is really quite fast, um, a lot of contact um, but really quick, quick play of the ball um, as well. So it's um, it's quite free-flowing too um, and because of that fast nature of it um high error rate um but still really quite exciting exciting rugby um as well so um a few little insights into how it's a little bit different um, mm. to australia i guess yeah no for sure it seems like a lot of you know players are wanting to go over to japan and and experience that type of stuff so it's really cool that you gave us that insight and it, it is really interesting how they do have that company sort of set up and you see that the benefit benefits for it for long term and is there something you know we can take some of some of the benefits out of there and put it into a strain rugby and making sure that we're setting up our athletes for um, good success 
post rugby because some people do trade, some people do study, but you can feel a bit lost, I guess, once you do retire and not knowing what you want to do. So I think we can sort of look to what Japan's doing and see how that we can take some little snippets out of that and maybe um, apply to here in, in, in Australia. Yeah, I agree. If there's some part of the rugby organisation that or a company that sponsors it, I think there definitely should be some kind of filter pathway similar to like what Japan do, that you're kind of guaranteed, whether you suit the criteria, that you're guaranteed a job for a certain period of time post your transition to assist in that. And and I know myself, I felt, you know, I felt like I, I've got a physio degree behind me. I'd done a broadcast commentary courses. I um had quite a nice CV, but even still then I felt a bit lost and wasn't sure of where to actually go um, and what to do. And and a lot of people, go, I guess, naturally just go into into coaching because it's like, oh, well, rugby is what I know, so I'm just going to keep going doing it in that regard. And I was kind of a bit the same and especially circumstantial-wise where I was over in Japan and looking for any opportunity that I could do. Um, so I think, yeah, taking the principles and the foundations of having that job security would um, – be really great for a lot of a lot of companies and and you look at all the attributes that athletes bring to businesses as well it's kind of a no-brainer you'd think Mm, 100 so we'll see what rugby australia can do post world cup and see how we can in can improve the game because it is a bit of a low point at the moment but we won't talk about that too much so (laughs) how did you end up playing rugby sevens and did you always want to play rugby from from a young age yeah so i had no idea what rugby was growing up Absolutely no idea. I played every sport under the sun growing up in small country town in Wagga Wagga and um, I was AFL based and like my parents loved AFL and yeah, it was I didn't really even know who the Wallabies were um, to be honest and I was playing touch football at the time um, and I'd been selected to play for Australia and we went over to the Touch Football World Cup in 2011. And off the back of that and an under-20s under of the um, Trans-Tasman in Canberra, um, Rugby Australia started recruiting Touch Football players because it just got announced that rugby had been included in the 2016 Olympics and they'd done a huge bid. They kind of realised they didn't have the depth within rugby um, currently to branch out and have a professional team. Um, So they pretty much sent letters out recruitment to girls that they had talent ID'd from touch footy um, because a few of the girls had transitioned from touch footy to sevens for the 09 World Cup in Dubai, which the Aussie girls won. Um, And so they thought, well, that was successful. Let's try that again. And they pretty much just flooded the um, touch football Australia inboxes Um, and I was fortunate enough to receive one of those letters so I came back from Scotland and um, I thought you know at 18 I'd I'd won a world cup for touch so I've kind of reached a pinnacle there Um, I'd always wanted to go to the Olympics I was a swimmer when I was younger and I loved watching all the Olympic events at swimming and didn't obviously really follow that path Um, and so I thought why not so I went down to a camp at the AIS that they had invited me to I thought it was the best because I'd just paid three grand to go to the Touch World Cup and fundraise for that um, to play for your country. And here, here they were going to fly me from, um, you know, Wagga to like from your home destination to Canberra. And I was like, you can't even fly from Wagga to Canberra. Um, but they were happy to pay for my petrol and or get me a pay for my bus to get there. And they were going to feed me for three days. And, and all I had to do was train. And I thought that was incredible. Like, you know, sign me up you know, and sign the dotted line and I'll be there. And so um, went along, 
absolutely petrified. I never, ever made a tackle in my life. And I went along and they had the likes of old girls like Alex Hargraves and Debbie Hodgkinson who were massive compared to me. Like, you know, I was 55 kilos dripping wet and they were, you know, 80 when they woke up in the morning. And I had to do tackle tech with them. I had to learn how to tackle them, had to run at them. I was covered in bruises my first camp, um, but I was hooked and I, and I loved it. Um, and I loved more what it could give me. And I, and I loved that it was hard and I loved that I wasn't good at it. Obviously at the time I was sad and disappointed that I wasn't good, but it gave me a challenge and it gave me something to strive for um, and it really gave me some motivation to achieve those big life ticket goals. Um, and so I just fell in love with it and that was kind of how I went into it. And and then they contracted a small amount of us um, through the um, DAS funding Um and so then, like, yeah, six months later, I'm in a small group of 16 women getting paid to, um, you know, train in my, uh, like, after hours, which I did anyway, um, and start playing some competitions um, with the Australian Women's Sevens. So it was a pretty whirlwind um, introduction. And my first game technically was for Australia and, like, the Central Coast Sevens. We played domestically for the Aussie Pearls. So um, it, it was a pretty cool to, to do. Um, and yeah, like came from absolutely nowhere. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It just shows you that, you know, sometimes the sport that you think you're going to, you know, go with for the rest of your life, it sort of doesn't work out. And then there are plenty of other sports out there. So it was really cool to see that you, you got those foundations in touch footy and learned, you know, how to be, um, you know, fast and, and agile and, and use your body, um, to evade people. And then, come over to rugby now you got to learn to keep those skills but sometimes you got to take contact and then be able to tackle and all that so it's good that you set yourself up really well to then have a really good uh, career in rugby sevens yeah definitely and I think um the foundations that I had from touch football um not so much the speed I wasn't the fastest but definitely the fitness I got from touch footy um and that agility and, and awareness as a ball player and and um you know in touch you have to evade a fingertip you know um and so whereas in, in rugby you obviously you can and brush through contact or whatnot so we were so good at avoiding contact um because we were just it, it was innate to us we'd done it since we were eight years old um but the contact side of things was the was the big um limiting factor and probably my how quick i how quickly i established a dominance in the game of sevens because i was quite fearful of the contact um you know, other players like Emily Cherry, she just took to it like a duck to water and she was really like, you know, she was playing in Dubai on the world stage four months, five months after her letter where it took me a, a lot a lot of time to um, build that confidence in the contact space and build the repetition and technique to be technically good at it. Um, but I think because of the competitiveness of of touch and the winning edge we had over Kiwis in touch as well. A lot of the rugby girls talk about how when when we came into the program, we had no fear of New Zealand because we we pretty much dominated them in all facets, mixed and and women's opens for years in the touch football space. Um, whereas in rugby, it was completely opposite. You know, New Zealand has such a rich tradition um, of rugby, and and whereas Australian women when hadn't, and they had always had these fierce battles, but you know, Australia never really got on top. And so we brought this sense of arrogance, I guess, and confidence that. Oh, New Zealand, like, they're not good at ball sports. Like, and um, I think that 
translated into giving them a bit of confidence to be like, oh, hey, here's this bunch of touchies that can't, you know, haven't really tackled, haven't really done anything and they're running rings around some of these Kiwi girls. So um, I think it definitely enabled us to be a better, have a better mindset and a better attitude towards rugby because of touch football. Mm, no, that's, that's that's really interesting. And, yeah, just that extra confidence to, uh, yeah, try and be a nation that is pretty damn good at rugby. So that's that's that's, yeah. that's, that's really cool. So what what was it like playing and traveling around the world um, in the seventh circuit? Um, it, it was hands down some of the funnest and best best times. It being able to travel the world with um, your bunch of best mates and friends and and play in all these um, fantastically different countries all around the world um, and destinations and experience all these incredible cultures. Um, yeah, it's you, you pinch yourself about how like grateful and lucky you feel to be able to experience that, um, and it it seems surreal that that was our job. That's what we did, um, you know, day in day out. We woke up, went to training, um, and then a couple of weeks later, we're on a plane to Dubai, and then the next leg we're off to Cape Town, and then back home to play in front of a you know Aussie crowd, and then off to New Zealand and. My passport was getting a workout and it was it was incredible um being able to do that a real privilege to be able to represent your country but do something that is so fun um and so enjoyable as well oh, no that's awesome what are some of the highlights that sort of stand out and come to mind from your time traveling the world playing sevens um i think probably my first ever um tour um in terms of just the enormity of effort it took to get there. And I definitely wasn't ready to play um, on the international stage, but I look back and, and see how much that shaped me as a player and that experience it gave me as a person as well. Um, and my mom and my grandma came over and it was the well, second last trip my grandma ever had done overseas. Um, and so that was really cool to have her. And we went to London, played in London on the outside fields at Twickenham. Then we played in Amsterdam and um, like for the Amsterdam Sevens. And, oh, I've got a little broken. Sorry. That's all <laughs> good. Um, yeah, and so that that was that was really cool in terms of like first and experiences and being like, wow, look at all these different countries at play as well. Um, and then I think the first ever time that we won a World Series tournament, um, which was in Dubai, that is probably one of my highlights too. And that kind of started the snowball effect of us being successful. Um, can't really go past the 2016 Olympics as probably the pinnacle of highlights um, and playing in front of a Brazilian crowd that we kind of attested to be our own because they were green and green and gold too. So we kind of morphed them into Aussie supporters for while we were there and having all our friends and family come over as well and be at this pinnacle event that you've dreamt about and heard about for years as a kid and everyone benchmarks as the ultimate sporting success, I guess, um, to then be there first and foremost um, and get to experience it, but then to be successful at it and to bring home a gold medal um would have to be a career highlight most definitely. Mm. This leads perfectly into the next question. You know, what was that moment like for you and the team, you know, 
winning that gold medal. Can you, can you sort of look back and describe it, how it felt? And, you know, prior to the tournament as well, did you go in there pretty confident that you could do the job or you sort of a bit unknown if we could, you know, step up to the next level of, of rugby sevens? Um, no, we were very confident in our preparation, confident in um, the success that we'd had. We'd been, um, I guess, had been beating New Zealand quite consistently and regularly over the time um, prior to the Olympics. So for us, we were um, we were really quite confident um, and probably so much in, in a way that like when we won, it was a bit of a sense of relief because I told everyone I was going to the Olympics and winning a gold medal. Like I think we had that belief in ourselves and in each other um, and, you know, outwardly expressing that that mantra and manifesting that success um, we had all done. Um, and so I know a few of us talk about that when that final sign went, that we were actually quite relieved because it was like we'd done it. We'd been talking about this for years. We moved our lives, um, you know, we'd left no stone unturned for that preparation um, and we'd had, you know, for us to like be here and be doing that was was pretty incredible and, and for it to then shape the course of a nation's, um, um to shape the course of a nation in terms of its rugby development for women um, was, was pretty big. So it, it was, yeah, relief, joy, like um, just crazy happiness, like the most, um, yeah, besides having children, <laughs> the most happiest moment um, that I can, can ex- could, have, could have experienced um, and, yeah, just just a beautiful, um, beautiful celebration of um, a lot of bloody hard work, to be honest. <laughs> um, so yeah, but when it was a bit surreal because they scored also on the hooter, um, or just before the hooter had went, and the kick obviously happened after the siren. And so normally we were we had like a bit of a match, like you know, no one scores last on us type situation, um, and it's a bit deflating if that kind of happens to you because you've you know, defended and you've let this try in at the very end and, and whatnot. But for once in one, one time, I, I remember saying to Emily, being like, who cares that they scored? We just won because um, we still had another seven points ahead of them and the game was over. So I would never be caught dead saying that normally. But at the Olympics, you know, I had to let that one slide. <laughs> yeah, it was just really cool. Um, just re- remembering when you know you did win, and then all the the press came out, and it was just really cool to see you know rugby being successful and just yeah. what what has also. that that roll on effect from um that games as well has been really cool to see the seven circuit you know gain more um audience and you know more athletes are coming through, and we're we're seeing just some really good athletes out there playing um some great sport and um. Yeah, it's just, it was just really cool to see you see you girls win and um you know just just dominate as well, which is awesome. Yeah, no, it was it was very cool to be a part of. So I'm, I'm you know, and it's 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 cool to you, you speak to even people now, um, like yourself and that that watched it and they remember where they were at the time and and um you know what day it was and just all of that kind of stuff as well. So that that's really cool to have that um involvement within the rugby community and or even without outside the rugby community people to remember that moment as well and it to be kind of iconic for um 
for not only us and our families but for um, the community and, and wider Australia in general. Mm, so I feel very awesome. lucky to have been a part of that. Mm. So, so where do you keep the gold medal now? Is it in a nice hidey spot or in a, a safe or something like that? Or um, no, people ask all the time. It used to just be in my um because we were living overseas and um abroad and around like we, we didn't have a house. Um, it just was in my mum and dad's computer drawer. Um, and, but then I've needed it for a few things and a few events. So then I've had to like post it around, or I've had to bring it over to Japan and bring it back. So. It, it's um, just it literally yo-yos itself around whenever I need it. So, and I'd left it in Agnes just recently because I'm like, I'll be safe there, I'll leave it there, like I won't need it. And then an event's popped up, and they obviously requested the medal, so I've had to get it posted back to Wagov when I go home next week. And so, it's um, it's all over the shop. But I saw on um, the Wide World of Sports the other day, Kerry Podast had her gold medal from the volleyball out um, on the show to show Ellie Cole. And um, they, she was like, yeah, it's out all the time. Like they, just, they have it still around. So I think it would be something that you'll just keep at the ready if you ever need um, mm. up your sleeve. Mm. <laughs> it's a pretty big flex to just to walk around with a gold <laughs> yeah. medal, you know. So yeah, I I'll don't definitely be bringing it, it out. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you if Matt's ever getting a bit chirpy, you could just just wear it around the house yeah. and be like just just remember, <laughs> yeah. you know. Just remember, this is also the gold medal of parenting too. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So what is required to be a successful Rugby Sevens athlete? Oh, a very broad, um, very broad question. But I think um, we lived off like the, the principles of like fast, fit and physical were like the um, the big the big ones in terms of like your um, uh physical presence and then it was like the intelligence um it's you have to know all of the rugby uh, rugby rules and, and apply all those rugby rules um in a wider space um, with smaller numbers and you have to be able to do that under extreme fatigue as well um and so the ability to be fast is is a no-brainer um obviously with all that space being able to run around people um agile to be able to change direction turn and chase um and fit just because of the nature of that high speed running meters that you're doing and be able to do that repeatedly throughout a 14 minute game um and then the phys- physicality of the collisions and then just the ability to like repeat efforts and and regulate lactic acid and and physically be able to get back up again and do another tackle and and, and make make repeat efforts on repeat efforts or bust through contact and stuff as well. So um it's like a lot of people that have played it, play sevens say it's like the one of the hardest sports um and most physically demanding sports um to do well and and to play well. Um, and when you see it played really well um then you you see literally like these incredible powerful physical um athletes that um that uh, make it look easy make it look easy um but i think too like depending nowadays depending on um position then i think then that only takes into correlation size because you can still be powerful, fit, fast, and and small, but you just play potentially like a nine, um, a nine or, or or even like a wing position. But obviously, a lot of bigger, fast forwards, power forwards, um, still need to be really quite fast, um, and agile, 
and physical um, and the games become really, really athletic as well. Mm, 100%. It's, I don't think people understand how hard sevens is until you go play a tournament or you go go live and watch a game because, you know, it might be only, you know, seven minute halves, but you're trying to play multiple games over a day, rest that night and then play again the next day and then playing in a potential final. So it just all adds up. And if you add all those totals up over the weekend, you're probably playing, you know, a really hard normal game in 15s plus a little bit of extra stuff on, on top. So um, it definitely is a hard game. And if you are looking to transition over, it's it's just going to take some time to be able to be and get used to um, playing sevens and then vice versa. If you've been playing sevens for quite a while, it's just going to take a little bit of time to adjust back to the 15s world. Yeah, most definitely. And I think too, that's the, the mental capacity of sevens players is also um, really important to be able to switch on, um, play high intensity and and give your best and then switch off, down-regulate, recover and be able to recover really quickly um, and then be able to do it all again. And that's three times a day, two days in a row, or it's two times a day, three days in a row. So that's even longer. So that's like a another sleep, a full night's sleep in terms of that, another day to get sore. Um, so sometimes three-day tournaments seem you would see because it's like, oh, it's only two games a day, but the intensity that you play at over those two games, two day, games on that day then gets dragged on for the three days where sometimes the, the two-day three, it's a lot more um, full-on but it's over in a lot quicker, quicker space and that, you know, mental capacity to switch on, switch off, it's, it all happens really fast and quickly. It's not kind of dragged on to over the three days. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like the sevens is, is wild in terms of um, uh, the intensity of it and, um, and, and how much it like, demands from you. Um, and I know a lot of sevens players that do go back to 15s, they find the 15s game like very long and arduous mm. and, and you don't get as much, you don't get as much ball, but you have to be so um, precise every time you do get the ball, you have to execute. Otherwise you're not getting another chance for another 15 minutes. hundred <laughs> percent. Mm, I think the, a good thing about, about the sevens. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think the good <laughs> things about sevens is your, your next game is pretty, um, pretty quick turnaround. So if you did have a bad game, you're like, cool, I can get it, get out there and play again and, and, and work on the things that I need to fix. Whereas in the 15s is like, damn, I got to wait a whole week and um, then get back on the field. So I, I do like that area of the sevens where you can, you know, put a bad game behind you pretty quickly and then go out there and play again. Yeah. And I think even at the elite level, it's like a bad half or a bad, you know, a bad moment, a bad two minutes. Um, and that's the nice edge between the best teams in the world and and that tier two teams as well. Um, and, and, and you're right, like you have such a um, opportunity to be able to, you might start really slow, but you're still winning successful or you might lose a game on day one, um, but then it's finals day and the quarterfinal is, uh, it's like um, a nice edge in terms of who wins that. It's a lottery sometimes because it's like, it's a new day, new like there's nothing to lose um teams just go absolutely gangbusters and some results end up completely unexpected um on on the seven circuit so it's it's a it's a good opportunity it's a good sport in terms of how you can just continually learn and develop and and work on things and have have progress and and um fix anything on the go as well hi everyone we just want to take a quick break from this episode We hope you're enjoying this episode so far and all the content we have produced. We appreciate all the support from our listeners and followers so far. 
If you haven't already, sign up to Elite Rugby SNC blog today. You'll find our website link in our bio below. Remember to like, subscribe, and share Elite Rugby SNC on all social media platforms to all your family and friends. Thanks again for all your support, and now back to the episode. So how did strength and conditioning training help you to become a better uh, Rugby Sevens athlete? So in, in touch football, I was all conditioning. I was just all running, um, you know, hadn't done any gym-based work. Um, and I think my first program I got was just a body weight program that was like, you know, um, 10 push-ups, three sets, 10 squats, three sets, and, you know, very similar to something like that, you know, pull-ups at the bar or under the under the table and, and some dips and calf raises. And I literally put on three kilos just doing a body weight program because I had just never been exposed to any form of strength training. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing for me. The strength and conditioning program helped me build so much muscle and I ended up playing around 65 kilos. So I put on over 10 kilos in my career that was obviously helped me be more powerful, more explosive um, and be able to create a lot more force um, in my in my movements and in my running capacity as well so um I learned to love love the gym I'd always loved running and like you, you would ask any of my teammates like I was always up for conditioning or doing extras or um conditioning games were my were my thing um and but the strength I had to work really hard at but I actually really loved I loved in the gym I loved chasing PBs I loved doing things that were really quite um, powerful and explosive and just that that made you better um, in terms of being able to bust through the contact because that was the area that I was um, quite weak at and um, and being able to hold my own um, in that and I think because of my position I ended up attack ceiling a lot in, in terms of supporting, passing ball supporting. So I had to be really strong over the ball. And I ended up also being one of the highest tacklers in the team too. So the ability to um, withstand contact and to be physically strong enough to brace and withstand contact, get up and do that again repeatedly, um, all came down to the strength and conditioning programs that I was that I had done or was doing throughout my career. Mm, that's awesome. It sounds like you started off with the the most basic program and earned the right to progress yourself over your time, which is really cool to see. And, you know, some people feel like you need to rush into doing, you know, your, your barbell back squats and all these sort of more complex lifts, whereas, you know, doing some some push-ups, pull-ups, bodyweight squats, doing some goblet squats, earning the right to go heavier and to progress yourself is, is the way to go and to establish that good relationship. Because the worst we could do is, you know, strength conditioning coaches is, do all these complex stuff and then you hate the gym and you know you go out for you go for your career where you know you and the gym don't have a good connection and you know we're seeing yeah. some really good positive results of what the gym does out on the field for rugby athletes so it's cool that you did you earned the right to go through it and and ended up enjoying um the gym throughout your career yeah definitely and i they did that a lot with um and they continue to do that a lot with a lot of the um, young females that come through the the programs um because you know it's um strength and development isn't isn't quite common um in, in the early days it is becoming a lot more now um and by doing that and enabling it to successfully build and 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 learn that like your body is changing for a positive um because that's other thing too like my body completely transformed in terms of muscle mass and and size um i was my nickname was sticks when i first started because i was like a twig um 
and then having these, you know, quads and, and you know, hamstrings that I'd never even thought existed before and, and all of that kind of stuff. And and so um, it's a really great transition for, for young females and, and young males as well to be able to start nice and slow, get really good technique um, and then build on those foundations and work towards, you know, your powerlifting and, and, and all of that kind of stuff that's the finite, finite, finite? The fine little one percent finesse one percent the one percent I'm like here my brain work um like you know that one percent um towards whereas you know being able to technically squat correctly is in, so crucial to you know pilfering over the ball getting low to make a tackle powering through through contact um and having those foundations were were really good for developing strong and positive um you know, fundamentals in the game. Nah, that's awesome. So is your nickname still sticks or is it, you know, changed after you got really strong? Did you become like bamboo or tree trunks or something <laughs> like that? You know, strong, you know, instead of being. Yeah, ripped? I was like quadzilla. No, I think that someone else <laughs> took that thing. Um, no, I still had the genetically had the tiniest calves in the world. Um, so no, but I didn't, I wasn't called sticks anymore. I just was, you know, back to quirky. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So what does a what did a normal training uh, week look like building into a tournament? How was oh. the the, the um, training sort of split between gym and field, and how many sessions sessions did you do during a day? So a normal training week um, would be pending on on the season and pending how um, crazy S and C was going at the time. Sometimes it would be double field, so a bigger field in the morning and then a small field in the afternoon that was like a high intensity or quick conditioning kind of block of games. Um, and with gym in the middle, so three kind of sessions um, in a day. Um, on the Monday, Tuesday would be um, potentially like a skills-based session, either indoors or um, on feet that's like lighter intensity um, and then another gym. Wednesday would be a day off. Thursday would be similar to Monday. Um, and depending on how you pulled up from that start of the week, it might only be one field session and then one gym. And then um, Friday's field and gym as well. So you'd be doing four, four gym sessions a week um, and then similar um, field, if not uh, four to six in the week. Mm-hmm. And just like your normal week, and then that would be tapered off as you head towards um, more into season and into um, a game, game like thing. And then same in the gym, it would be altered to be more like um, explosive band work stuff, lighter, lighter reps. You know, a bit more like box jumpy type situation than kind of a heavy squat lift and um, and whatnot, and a little bit of like an upper body pump um, pre-game. So that would be a typical four-day week and then you've also got then just um say girls that are in rehab or you've got extra conditioning sessions you might have what bike or extra um, gym pumps as well based on what your uh, your areas that you need to improve on or where you need greatest development in and sometimes also just strengthening your strengths so um um sometimes I just like to do extra running or, or, or whatnot so I might have been modified some weeks and other weeks I might be able to do more in that area to sharpen the axe on the things that you're really good at um and then within that that's just there's obviously then time slots and allocated for just extra PSS so player specific skills as well so it's a big a big week like um when you get through content and load of it um there's lots that is done in that space um, 
as just the bare minimum anyway. Mm. So what does Daisy's uh, week look like in the gym and out on the field? Does so, she uh, do yeah, some double Daisy. sessions every day? or? <laughs> yeah, she's just on the um, the protein diet at the minute. Um, bit, of floor, bit of foreplay, bit, bit of tummy time. But, yeah, <laughs> very, she's doing very different to what um, I would have done. Her, her weeks are very easy compared to a normal seventh week. Mm. I don't know if you've seen on TikTok, there's this guy and his um, little son, he's just provides updates on his little boy's uh, bulk and, you know, he's just helping him do chin-ups and all these little things. It's hilarious, but it's really cool to see him, you know, slowly ingrain all these little things that he wants his son to do. It's it's really cool. So, yeah, that is cool. Mm. So you might have to keep us updated on how um, little Daisy to, goes. Yeah. yeah, she's packing the pounds on at the minute, which is good. Mm. That's awesome. So what did recovery look like during the week of all this training that you're doing, all these extras, and then over a tournament, what were the, the go-to things for you in terms of recovery? And was there anything that sort of helped that you sort of didn't necessarily think that would help? Yeah, so traditionally it would be um, post-field, it would be a, um, a option of either like a, a recovery river or like um, pool recovery or um, hot cold ice bath contrasts um, and pending also on injury protocols so a lot of as a lot of as we went a lot of tendon based stuff avoided ice during the week or during tournament um, just to be able to keep um, everything warm and, and tendon health um, in a in a good you know um, state as such and so that would kind of be contrasted you might just do heat for recovery um, and then post a gym or field uh, post a gym sorry then it would, might be just like a partner stretch that we would do in terms of our recovery there and then you'd finish like on a Tuesday after a big couple of days they had the recovery boots out um, and would be using recovery boots um, or day off it would be type you know recovery boots ocean swim, light walk, um, more of an active recovery a lot of the time. I think because you we were so on the go all the time and you have to be moving and constantly going again, the active recovery was really important for us. And same with in a tournament, um, there'd be some girls that really liked the ice bath post-game as also just a way, depending on the heat, because we play a lot around the summer, just to down-regulate their core body temperature as well. Um, and so that would be their preference or it would be like if you didn't do ice baths, it would be legs up for 10 minutes and just get a lot of that um, lactic acid out and, fl- and blood flow back um, through the body um, and then it would be everyone flushes through the recovery boots and then a huge intake of protein. So it would be protein shake, post, most field and gym, um, lots of food, um, food nutrition intake is, is huge and just getting that in, in really early. Um, post a session um, and then sleep we would sleep in between games if we could even it was a quick 20 minute cat nap um, sleep in between sessions at um, RA um, and then most girls would be in their pajamas at four o'clock and ready for bed after dinner <laughs> yeah I definitely um, could imagine that after big trainings or, or games you just knackered and you're just ready to go to sleep yeah, yeah, and then and then the standard recovery things. Obviously, um, a lot of girls like to roll or stretch um, as well. Compression garments, um, and or for contact recovery protection, like wearing shoulder pads in bigger heavy sessions, just so that you're recovering quicker. 
for then and a game that's that's closer to the tournament as well so kind of like preventative recovery stuff as well um that a lot of the group found helped in that regard um but yeah kind of utilizing whatever you could because it was brutal by then but you did whatever you could to get to get your body back into into good health because it, it's your biggest asset your biggest tool so putting as much of it into it as you can and there's you know a few chirotherapy sessions here and there um if, if people found that worked for them um the floats the recovery floats i really enjoyed um and really liked the um salt floats as well um especially post because you've got to take into account too with all that travel a lot of jet lag um as well so maximizing melatonin intake and getting your sleep back to normal rhythms and doing anything you can to just flush toxins out and and keep going yeah 100 percent. it's it's definitely something that you can easily forget about but you know it plays a massive role in in, in our game and, and for athletes to be able to perform week in and week out so it, it's a great insight that, that that you just said and the, the key point there was you know finding what works for you you know some things are going to work some things don't and don't do something that you don't like in doing because it's probably not going to have any good benefits for you so just you know, experiment with, with stuff out there, but, you know, find your routine and find what works for you and, and, and see what see what happens really. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I would have to agree with that. And uh, the older you get to, the more, the more you're probably doing to keep your body going. It's very different to the young 18-year-old that's just coming in fresh, bouncing back after every session, never had an injury. <laughs> mm, 100%. So for athletes wanting to transition over to Rugby Sevens, what advice do you have for them? Um, I think open-minded and just giving it a go as hard as it's going to be, um, to transition. If you are looking for a really big challenge, um, a hundred percent, give it a crack. Um, I, I was of a big advocate of like, don't ever let anyone tell you that you're not good enough or that you, um, you know, don't deserve to be there. Like if you have and hopes and ambitions and you want to chase them, absolutely go for it and get the right people in your corner and you'll be successful in that regard. Um, so I think the biggest thing to do if you're transitioning to rugby sevens, like it, it's really hard but it's really fun and rewarding as well. Um, so just embracing embracing what well, we had a mantra as well, like just enjoy the hard work. Um, so that's probably the big a big one as well, just enjoying the hardness of it because the reward from it is re- is really good. Mm, 100%. So how did you and the team create such a unique and strong sisterhood? Because every time you look at the, the Sevens girls, it's just, you know, good vibes, you're working hard and you're so connected as well. And, and it shows out on the field and, and it's shown since you've won that, that gold medal how strong that sisterhood is. So how did you and the team create, you know, that such unique connection that you have? Yeah, we had a really... Um... I think because when we first started um, back in 2014 when we all went professional, um, we all kind of like made the choice to well, a lot of the girls gave up their full-time jobs that were, you know, high earning salaries um, and a lot of the girls moved from interstate to Sydney and we kind of became the first ever, you know, professional program in Australia and we kind of all took it on a chance for not for not much money and for you know the hope that we were going to make the olympics and the hope that we were going to do well and it was going to take a lot of hard work and a, like you know good a, a good 2 years of um 
sacrificing and and choices towards being successful. Um, so we kind of all in in that um, instance re- only really had each other and we only really relied on each other. We all kind of moved to Sydney and no one lived in that area. And so we really became quite a family. Um and we had we had a lot of a lot of people go through some really hard times and some really tough times in that as well. And I think that really bonds you tighter and tighter. And I think then too, we started to see the rewards of the hard work. And that once you started enjoying that hard work and you realize that this is really fun and this is really um an amazing opportunity. And we were experiencing different cultures and trips and spending so much time in each other's back pocket, you just naturally become family and, and learn um how to look out for each other and and sevens two also exposes every single individual's weaknesses and teams look to expose every single individual's weaknesses and you needed to be able to know each other intricately to be able to cover for each other and to be able to help each other because ultimately if you didn't it only takes one person to miss a tackle and that's a try one person to get stepped one person to fall off you know one person to drop a ball or whatnot or one person not to be able to um, pass left to right and you can't finish on that side. So if you didn't know what each other's um, work-ons are, then you couldn't really look after each other on the field or you couldn't really help each other get better off the field. Um, So I think we had enough time because we were around each other so often to really work on those things and it all kind of come together really well at Rio, led by... Um, head coach at the time, Tim Walsh. And I think he's then come back in again with this new crop of young players and doing quite similar in terms of like making the off-field really fun and taking it away from it being like a full-time job, making them work really hard and creating like that sisterhood and, and that kind of family environment again without having everyone had to relocate and go through all that kind of stuff that we did and fight for um, a lot of the rights that, um, the girls are afforded today so um, I think that's probably the foundation of kind of where it came from and and everyone kind of just had that same mindset of wanting to win and win for each other and that goes a long way in terms of um, a team that's successful if everyone's on the right page and and like you don't have to like love each other all the time um, but kind of have that same drive and that same will to want to win together um, I think that makes a hugely uniquely successful team and we had a sports site come and speak to us one time and it was kind of like finding out would you rather be the star of the team but your team loses and you get a silver medal but you're the star you you know you get best on ground or whatever and you play every single minute or would you rather miss out and your team wins a gold medal or you you come off the bench and you only get a minute or like you know you, you don't play but your team wins a gold medal and I think that goes to show a lot of the people that you have in your group if you're picking and playing more people that are picking the latter choice of team first mentality than picking the first choice um, and I think we just had a, a, a lot of people in the group that wanted to do the second choice. Mm. You definitely see it when teams are successful that, you know, they're a team and, you know, no one's above the team or anything like that. So it's it's really good to remind yourself and the team of that, you know, we're trying to strive to something together and no one's above the team and we don't want those those star players, even though the whole team is probably the star player, you know, because you could because yeah. you're working together. So it's you could probably also remind each other of that. But no, it's 
sounds like a really good system that's in place and it'd be pretty cool if there was a documentary about that as well you know the time that yeah. you've been there and you know even now just following the the seven circuits around i think that would be pretty cool to show all the things that we don't see um enough of um you know as people just watching the the game so th- i think that would be a pretty cool idea yeah well you know if you, if you want to go into production career i'm happy to go in it for, in, in, yeah. in it with you <laughs> yeah. maybe i'll keep it in mind so just, <laughs> just moving on to the short and sharp questions um just to wrap up the the podcast so outside of rugby uh sevens and rugby union what sports do you like to keep up to date with and watch i've been really invested in the matildas and the soccer lately um so that's been one that i keep up with um Really interested in the NRLW um, because obviously a lot of the girls that are in that competition now are X sevens players. So it's like watching all of your friends go head to head regularly in that competition. So I've been really into that as well. Obviously, um, the World Cup's on, but that's still that's fifteen, so that's um, still outside of my rugby realm. Um, and um, I have a little vested interest in the AFL here and there um, as well. And one of my really good friends plays in AFLW, um, so watching that too. Um, but, yeah, that, that they're about the the main ones that I can find time for currently to be able to, mm. to tune into. <laughs> 100%. But, no, there's, there's so many good rugby sevens or ex-rugby players playing in the NRLW and they're doing a great job. And, you know, you lo- love to see it, but you also, like, be good if – one day we, we can keep that talent in rugby union as well or allow them to be able to play both tournaments if they could or just something like that because, yeah, we are seeing a lot of uh, girls transitioning over and potentially not coming back. But, yeah, that's a different story. Yeah. No, and, and I understand that too because the NRL at the minute, NRLW, it offers you the flexibility to be mm. semi-professional. And for some people, the seventh circuit is too much it's too, you're away too much. It's too mm. hard. You're training full time. It's just, it's not a lifestyle that um, that suits everyone. Um, and whereas the NRLW is currently offering you that option to be able to play a short season, um, really intense, really professional. Um, but then you can go off and do something else as well, mm. or you can then do your representative honours for Jillaroos or or Kiwi or Tonga, whoever you play for. Um, and then you can also then have another job that you have or spend more time with your family and, and friends. Um, whereas the seventh circuit is, it's brutal. It's full on. It's, eight legs over the world over around the year plus pre-season all over the world um so it's not for the faint-hearted so I can mm. it's not like I it's hard sometimes because it's not like I feel like we're not losing them it's just sevens provides the cream of the crop like it's mm. the best of the best that stick around with sevens um in, in my opinion um yeah and that can actually that actually are successful and crack it the ones that do and are good at it they stay there for a long period of time um and uh have a great longevity in the game I think it would be great for the ones that maybe aren't suited to the sevens or like don't find that lifestyle and, and or, um, or whatnot that they're transitioned into the 15s and they become successful in the 15 side of the game as it it's in that semi-professional state and they are still involved in rugby as well. Hundred mm, percent, but yeah, yeah, it's exciting times because the the NRLW is just getting better, and I'm really enjoying the state of origin as well, where it's the best of the best going against each other. It's been some really, really good games and good footy. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I I just thought this season was really cool as well. Um, and just you know, each year just getting better. So it's um, yeah, exciting times ahead. Mm, agree. So, which uh, rugby player is due for a breakout season in the Aussie Sevens for the girls? Ooh. I 
they've got they've really retained a lot of um their talent from last year and i think hopefully with opportunity um uh Bientiera will have a really massive year this year she had a breakout year for the wallaroos last year um and then she was kind of limited with game time because obviously Maddie Levi was going so well and Faith Nathan also was being really successful. But I think um, if she transitions more into that fast forward role and um, with a really good preseason under her belt, um, hopefully she will be massive, um, massive for the girls there. And that just had adds another level to their um, physicality and speed that they have on the field um, at that time. Um, I know Dom Detroit has been doing a lot of work at nine ten, so I'd love to see um, see how she goes in in, in that role um, as well. Um, previously, just been a winger or a centre, um, so adding her speed and her variability in her game into that nine and ten position, um, hopefully, might be a added string to the Aussie sevens bow as well. So they're probably two to keep an eye on for um, for this year. I think. Mm, fantastic. So which is your go-to song that you would uh, sing at a karaoke bar? The song that I know all the words to is Shake a Tail Feather by Nelly um, and P. Diddy off the Bad Boys 2 soundtrack, no, which it's is a good so song. random. It's a good song. Um, yeah, my husband only lets me play it on my birthday, he reckons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a song I know all of the words to. Um, but I've been to karaoke a few, karaoke is quite big here in Japan and I've been a few times and most recent times I've been pregnant while I've been. Um, so there's, I've actually realized there's a lot of songs that I know and I'm really good at singing. Mm. Is there some kids songs <laughs> that, that, that come into mind as well that you'd probably sing? Oh yeah. I'm all over baby shark. Yeah. I've got that nailed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. What is a, a common misconception you hear in rugby that is just wrong? Um... Oh, this one was true. I couldn't really think. In terms of women's rugby, like especially when I first started and still, especially with sevens, I think the common misconception is that like we play on a smaller field, which obviously is is wrong. Um, Just because there's less players doesn't mean that we have a smaller field. So that's probably one that I've heard commonly and still to today, whereas it used to be, oh, you actually tackle. It's not just like tag rugby. Um. Like girls just play tag um mm. and so that was early days but that's less way less common to mm. hear nowadays um with the change of the guard um but still the size of the field is a big one that people ask often um so obviously just think smaller number smaller field yeah yeah they probably haven't watched the game and you're like no we play on the same venue no. what, what, why would they same create field, a whole... that's why yeah. my lungs are falling out <laughs> <laughs> So who was the biggest pest on tour and why? Um, that's that of myself. <laughs> um, I think we didn't really have like a pest as such. Like, yeah, we, we weren't really like someone that was really annoying. Um, but I think Elia always had to be in control of the music. Um so that became annoying because sometimes the music wasn't like for everyone. Um, <laughs> and yeah, not like probably the coaches more than anything. Like <laughs> Tom Carter was a bit annoying all the time, just in around and um, Craig Twentyman back in the day, he, he was a pest, like just a ball of energy, but just a pest as well. Mm. Um, but all in good fun. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure, hundred percent. So, what what has been a big game changing moment in your rugby career that sort of stands out? Um, early career was probably um, when I didn't get picked for the two thousand and thirteen World Cup, where they went to Russia. Um, and thinking that I had the skill set, attack wise, and um, vision and everything to to be picked, but that my defense wasn't up to scratch um you know my mindset was like let in two tries or just score three tries you know it's not obviously how the game works um so that was probably a big defining moment in terms of like okay well I need to really fix this and I need to work on this because I don't want to feel like this in two years time when the Olympic selection comes around so that was probably the biggest game changing moment for me in terms of changing my mindset and my approach to um approach to the game um an approach to sorry daisy just having all the arm here too um approach to the way that i trained and and defended and tackled and and then by that moment that i just got anyone and everyone to just start running at me just so that i just had repetition different body types different diversities just so that i was versed in chopping down whoever came my way 100 percent is there any book re- recommendations that you think people should read? Books. Um, well, currently there's a new A to Z of Who I Could Be out by Chloe Dalton, which is a kid's book that yours truly is very fortunate to feature in under the queue. Nice. Pays to have an odd pays to have an odd last name. Um, but a fantastic book um, that she's put out for kids about 26 um, female athletes from different sports. Um, around so that's a really good um, kids book a little Chrissy present um, that's good and also the one she wrote about girls don't play sport about the progress of women's sport in Australia so there are two books that I've just read recently um, that I would recommend to to people about like women's sport Um, outside of that the only other books I've read are parenting books (laughs) I'm not sure anyone that I want to read any of those currently Who knows, they might find a time that they do need it very soon. So last question, looking back at your wonderful rugby career, how would you describe it? Um, Oh, good. Good. Um, How would I describe it? I think it was, um, it was, it seemed like it was, for me, it just seemed wild in terms of, um, like endless opportunity would probably like a word that described like it it provided me above and beyond anything that I could ever have imagined um and it seems unfathomable that it actually happened um and I guess sometimes in the depths of motherhood currently you look back and you go wow like was that did that was that real like quite surreal for you know a young young girl from Wagga to start playing a completely different sport end up at the Olympics travel the world on the world stage and then, um, you know, then the way that it kind of came to an end in, in, in essence, missing out on, on Tokyo because of COVID and and then having a baby and all of that to then get back to it and just absolutely love it was was really cool. So it was kind of like the opportunities were endless in it and it was it was wild, wild fun. Nah, that's awesome. So who should be my next guest on the podcast? Is there any athletes or coaches that come to mind? Um, I think if you're looking for a really good um, person to speak to in terms of um, 
SNC, um, it would be Tom Carter if you haven't had him in. Um, he is obviously had played um, for the Waratahs, Sydney Uni for a long time um, and was an absolute pest when he played the game um, but has really changed his mantra in terms of um, his approach to things now that he's at SNC and working within the female program and, and he was um, really good in terms of like changing and taking the Aussie Women's Sevens programs where it was as a gold medal success to then like he was pretty much the backbone of that triple crown that they did last year as well. So, um, yeah, I think he'd be someone really, really cool and insightful to to speak to about the seven side of the game. Awesome. Sounds good. So where can listeners uh, find you on social media if they want to keep up to date with you? Um, yeah, I'm just on Instagram. Leisha underscore quirk is my um, tag. And... I'm on Twitter, but it's not called Twitter anymore. X, yeah, it's called, it's called X. Weird. X, um, <laughs> which I still find weird, um, which is just Alicia Quack as well. Awesome. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Daisy, as well for not, um, yes. you know, bursting out or anything like that. You've, she's, done, she's done a wonderful job. But th- but thank you for joining me today. It's been awesome to get a, a more of an in-depth insight into your career and sevens and all that. And um, I couldn't thank you enough. And I, I know people are going to get a lot out of this episode as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kim, for having me on. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Elite Rugby SNC podcast. Remember to like, subscribe, and rate Elite Rugby SNC on Spotify and YouTube, and make sure you follow us on Instagram. Sign up to Come a Beast via the link in the description or via Instagram page. Also, don't wait, make that good decision, and join Elite Rugby SNC today and take your game to the next level.